0: Hello, my name is Dave Shanieffaugh, and if you're listening here because you've listened to each of the other seven episodes on the trial of Jesus and the history behind it, and the supplemental episode on the two thieves, then God bless you. I'm guessing you had no idea what you were getting into when you said to yourself, well, I'll give this a little listen to here and see where this goes. The danger of calling something a podcast is that it only describes the form and not the substance of what's in it. And that substance can vary in the extreme. There's a very nice and kind review of my podcast by a guy out there who said, Look, folks, this really isn't a podcast. It's a book that's been uploaded. I'm fine with that. He's right. This isn't a podcast as most people probably think of it. It's really a book that I'm just too lazy to get published. And I figure that's good enough for now because there are plenty of people, dare I say most people, Who never would read a book, but will listen to something while they're driving around, doing laundry, dishes, just weeding in the yard, whatever, that's fine. Then this podcast is for you and for me too. So, where am I going with all this? First of all, again, God bless you for sticking with this. I love the stuff, you love the stuff, and we can think about this stuff forever. And if you're listening to this stuff for the first time, God bless you too. You don't have to wade through all the back episodes to get something out of this one here. So welcome, friends, as we wander into, shall we say, another spinoff of the trial of Jesus and talk about characters at the crucifixion. I began with the two thieves because of their particular interest to me. And I want to talk about the centurion for the same reason, because he's of interest to me too. Centurions of the ancient Roman army were tough and rugged. How would you size them up generally? Well, they're veterans. They've seen killing. They've done killing. And they've seen and done a lot more than just killing. They've seen it all. And when you've seen it all, you tend not to believe in anything. Just do your job, wait for payday, imagine retirement, move on. Try to survive. You're not like all those poor slobs around you who have to work with their hands to earn a living whether in a field or in a pottery shop or at a carpenter's lathe. You never had luck or brains enough to be a merchant. As the saying goes, you have to have money to make money, and you never really had money to speak of. And even if you would have had money, you really don't have a knack for numbers and deals, and you probably would have lost all your money on a bad deal somewhere. You also probably don't have much of an extended family either, at least a family that has some members who want to bring you into the family business. Maybe you're an orphan. Maybe you're a bastard. Not necessarily a dirty, rotten one, just maybe one born of a local prostitute. You know your mom, but who's your daddy? No idea. Or maybe you do know your daddy, and he was a military man too. Of course, you probably never saw him much if he was a military man. He'd be gone on campaigns for years at a time. When he came back, he was irritable, restless to get on with the next. Sea captains make lousy husbands and fathers for the same reasons. They're your average absentee father with authoritarian cachet. Hey, you're my kid. I want you to have the same miserable life that I've had. Listen to your ma and be good at school while I'm away. So, others raise you and they tell you what you're going to be when you grow up and that you better start acting like your father now, even though you really haven't seen your father enough to know how to act like him. You carry his old shields around, you try to wield his old heavy swords, you bark and scream at imaginary enemies, and you hold your chin up for whatever adversities come your way. Yeah, that's your dad. You want to be like him. So you grow up, and now you are like him. For lots and lots of different reasons, then, you decide to go into the military. It's not a horrible life. You are in service of a great, powerful government that has conquered the world, or enough of it that you don't care about any unconquered part of it. You'll have authority over others, authority over those other poor slobs that work in the field, the farm, or the shops. You'll enjoy the camaraderie of fellow soldiers, because a lot of them will have come from the same background that you did and because you'll have shared hardships and horrors with them and make you just as much a band of brothers as the 101st Airborne Division in World War II. You'll bring honor to your family, assuming you have a family, and depending on what high honors you get, you'll be celebrated wherever you go. You'll get to travel to lands far and wide and experience cultures and peoples, their food and their ways, and tell stories about them the rest of your life. Assuming you have a long life, which is no guarantee, not even a likelihood, which is why you live for all the pleasures of the moment that you can. Food, drink, and sex, get it when you can, however you can, just survive how you can. Yeah, survive. Because that's all that counts. That's all you know. Maybe there's an afterlife. Maybe there's not. Nothing you can do about it one way or the other. Maybe you get assigned to work in Judea under the procurator Pontius Pilate, or maybe you were already from Judea or Syria, but you were not a Jew. In fact, you hated Jews, but you wanted to join the Roman army for some or all of the same reasons mentioned above. And then you get assigned to, say, Jerusalem, where you're in charge of the public executions carried out there. Maybe you care, maybe you don't care. Chances are, though, the longer you do that job, the less you care. The more you get used to it, through all your senses. The sounds of screaming and crying from victims, from their families and friends, from their adversaries. The smells of the job, foul smells of the unwashed, sweat-soaked victims, and other clothes that you'd be stripping from them and gambling with your buddies to keep. The smells of rough-hewn wood from the crosses they were affixed to. The smell of blood oozing from their wounds or excrement dripping down their legs. The smell of earth, rock, rope, iron, hammers, of cheap wine and jugs nearby. And the smell of mangy wild dogs hanging around looking for a treat. You would hear it all, smell it all, touch it all, and taste a bit. All while taking in an utterly ghastly sight all around you of killing and death. You're in charge of that. There's a wonderful documentary, wonderful if you can call it that, on the Holocaust. It's called Shoah, nine hours of film directed by Claude Lonsman, a French filmmaker. It was made in 1985, and I happen to hold the very strong opinion that this film must be watched by every single person alive in the world, and who will be born into this world. The film consists of interviews, one after another, with survivors, witnesses, perpetrators of the Holocaust. The one echo you hear from one interview after another, with guards who worked the concentration camps, who turned on the gas showers, who bulldozed bodies of women and children into deep ditches or removed their ashes from the incinerators, was this. Oh, it was hard at first, but after a while, you get used to it. Yeah, after a while, you get used to it. It's true. So very true. You can get used to anything. And that's why I bring up this point now about you. If you were the centurion charged with overseeing executions in Jerusalem under the authority of Pontius Pilate in beholding all the sights, the smells, the sounds, the tastes, and the feel of crucifixions. Yeah, it's hard at first, but you know, after a while you get used to it. Which brings me to my point of interest in this particular character at Jesus's crucifixion here. This is a guy who has seen it all, heard it all, smelled, touched, and tasted it all. And yet on one day, a day seeming like every other day, but not ending up like any other day, before or since, he sees one victim, he looks on that victim, and says with the most astonishing words that ever came out of his mouth, and will be quoted for all ages thereafter, and forever and ever, quote, truly, this is the Son of God. So, will you join me into a deep dive into this fellow? The scriptures don't tell us anything about him, not even his name, so we're left to speculate about a lot of things. But we do have fair means of speculation available. We can look at what history tells us about Roman centurions and their lives, and we can see how centurions appear in other passages of scripture. And then we can come back into the crucifixion account, see what saints and scholars have had to say about this particular centurion. I guarantee that when we're done, we'll be left to ponder a lot more things about the cross of Christ, which is ultimately why we're doing this. Let's try to get under the skin of a centurion Which, interestingly enough, is something we can do, thanks to the abundance of historical material on ancient Roman army life. There's a very fine summary about this in one of the great lecture courses that you can get through Audible. It's by a professor, Robert Garland, from Colgate University in 2013, and his lecture number 26 from his general multi-part lecture series, which has this captivating title, The Other Side of History. Daily life in the ancient world. Lecture 26 is on, quote, being a Roman soldier. And I'm going to crib from some of that here, in addition to drawing from other common sources available on the subject. What makes the scriptural reference to the centurion so intriguing to us now, so many centuries later, is that centurions seem more accessible to us than other figures from ancient history. And that's because the link between them from back then and to us now is fairly strong and comports a lot with what we know about military life today. The Roman army was the most formidable fighting machine the world had ever seen. And it was the Romans who invented many features of modern military life. Barracks, promotions, tours of duty, bugle calls, camp infirmary, positions and leave discharge review boards, and even troop entertainment. Certain aspects, practices, configurations of the Roman army would vary and develop over time, as you might imagine. But I'm going to focus on the period of around Jesus' time and the period of Roman history that covers about, I'll say, 100 years before his birth and 100 years thereafter. In the latter stages of the Roman Republic, various changes were introduced, but those changes don't concern us here. So if what I'm about to relate here is different than what you've heard about ancient Roman military life, that may be so, but because we're talking about different periods of ancient Roman military life, what I'm talking about applies just to the time period around Jesus's time. The centurion was the highest rank a common soldier could ever aspire to. Military ranks above the centurion were held by Roman citizens of status, equestrian class, and the coveted senatorial class, the political classes, shall we say. But the centurion was recognized by the political classes from the top of the chain down and by the grunt soldiers from the bottom of the chain up as being the most experienced fighters who are also capable of leading and inspiring the troops under their command. Here's what one contemporaneous Roman military writer, Vegetius, said of them. The centurion in the infantry is chosen for his size, strength, and dexterity in throwing his missile weapons, and for his skill in the use of his sword and shield, in short, for his expertness in all the exercises. He is to be vigilant, temperate, active, and readier to execute the orders he receives than to talk. Strict in exercising and keeping up proper discipline among his soldiers, in obliging them to appear clean and well-dressed and to have their weapons constantly rubbed and bright." All right, pretty fair description, right? The centurion also wielded absolute authority over the troops under him. He literally had the power of life and death over his subordinates, and he held the military equivalent of a pater familias, the father of the family. If you as a soldier were to commit a mild offense, he would beat you with a rod. If you committed a more serious offense, he'll also have you fined, demoted, or even transferred to another legion. If you fall asleep on guard duty in enemy territory, he could order your fellow soldiers to club you to death. But in a way, the centurion had earned his right to this privilege and was put more often than others in harm's way because of his position. Centurions suffered a disproportionate number of casualties in battle because they led from the front. In fact, specifically, at the front right of the unit's formation. Enemies would recognize them by a transverse horsehair crest on top of their helmets, not unlike some punk rocker from the 80s with a huge purple mohawk. They also got to wear their swords on their left sides, like all Roman officers. They also suffered a higher casualty rate because they were supposed to lead and inspire their men by example, and it was their skill and courage that usually brought them to their rank in the first place. And despite the centurion's life and death authority over the men below him, an authority that could very well become a horrid tyranny, the relationships actually seemed to work out pretty well overall. There are many accounts of how soldiers in retirement would come to work for and live near their centurion during his time of retirement. He had money, they didn't, and they were quite happy to assume an employee-employer relationship. So how did one actually rise through the ranks to become a centurion, and what did he experience along the way? I think those facts are intriguing because they help us crawl into the minds of the centurion at the cross And the other centurions, Jesus and Paul, met along the way. To join the Roman army, you could be conscripted or you could volunteer. Conscription was a kind of draft based on whether you were a citizen and owned property. And there are various exemptions and conditions on it. But volunteers were allowed too. Slaves, incidentally, were not allowed to join the army. So the regular army was therefore comprised of citizens. But if you were not a citizen and wanted to join the army, you would join an auxilia, which had the same organization and function of any regular unit. These auxilia were recruits from the Roman provinces, like for purposes here, Judea and Syria, and they were attached to the full Roman legion. Why would you join the Roman army if you lived in one of the provinces, say like Judea or Syria? Well, because you'd get military training, a set of employable skills, a steady income, reliable living conditions, and, if you made it to retirement, Roman citizenship. Because of the size and breadth of the Roman Empire, the army was extraordinarily multicultural, shall we say. The historian Tacitus says, quote, It was an army of many languages and many customs in which citizens, allies, and foreigners mingled together. As Professor Garland points out, you'd be mixing with many peoples from many different places who weren't Roman and didn't even have a very good idea of what being Roman meant. But it was an ingenious allowance because it had the effect of creating an enormously unifying principle among all of them. Recruits typically age between 17 and 23, although that boundary might be stretched from as young as 14 to as old as 36. The army was rather particular about married life. Your average soldier could not get married after he joined. If he was married before, that'd be all right. Just don't marry after you join. Except for centurions. They were allowed to marry while in service. And once in a while, under certain peaceful circumstances, your wife and children could actually accompany you. Recruits were expected to be taller than normal, The average Roman man was about five feet, five inches tall. Roman legionaries are supposed to be taller, at least five eight, although there is some dispute about that and whether that limit applied in the provinces where people were shorter. The point is that Romans wanted big athletic men because some people, like the Celts in the North, were big and scary looking. Recruits were more likely to be accepted if they came from the countryside. There was a prejudice against city slickers in the Roman army. They were thought to be unruly and a bad influence. If you were a foreigner, you would have to have at least a smattering of Latin so you could understand the orders being given. You'd swear an oath of allegiance to the emperor, a sacramentum. Funny how we Catholics borrowed this same word for correlative use. You'll renew this oath every New Year's Day, which for the Romans began with the spring equinox on March 21st. You'd get three gold coins as a sign-up fee, which is worth more than $1,000 in today's money, and this signing bonus was called a viaticum, which means what's needed for your journey, and thus we get another cool word added to the Catholic lexicon, viaticum, which also means what you need for your journey, but in the context of receiving the Eucharist right before you die and leading to your final journey home to heaven. You'd then go through four months of grueling training. If you were in Rome, you'd train at the campus Martius, which means the field of Mars, and it was next to the Tiber River. Mars, of course, was the god of war, and the month of March, march get it, was named after him. And it was in that month when Rome began campaigning for soldiers, which is why it got that name. You'd learn how to use a sword, Thrusting with the sword was preferable to slashing because it was more deadly. You'd learn how to throw the pilum, or the spear. You may remember we talked about that word in podcast number five because it may have been the root source for Pontius Pilate's family name, pilatus, a word derived either from spear or from helmet. You'd have to learn how to throw it accurately for 30 meters or as I like to think in football field measurements, about 33 yards, and therefore anywhere in the red zone. You'd also learn how to shoot a bow, an arrow, and how to shoot darts with a sling. You'll also learn how to build a camp and get in formation. You would learn tortoise formation, where you all cluster together and hold your shields over your heads and on all sides to create a unified protective shell against a hail of arrows or spears or other projectiles. You'd wear a covering over your shoulders and chest called a lorica, which is made out of iron plates and straps. You may have heard of that term before, lorica, in relation to St. Patrick's lorica. It's a beautiful prayer for protection, a kind of breastplate for life. I'm not sure if St. Patrick himself called it that, but he might have because he was well familiar with Roman soldier life and practices. The lorica is one reason why you'll often see Pilate depicted wearing that in the movies because that's what soldiers sometimes wore. Procurators, like Pilate, also wore robes, probably a whole lot more than they wore the iron, because it was a whole lot more comfortable. But say, if Pilate wanted to appear in a sign of strength, maybe he wore that when he was judging Jesus. Or maybe he wore a white toga, where he could look more regal in his trial of the king of the Jews before him. But we don't know, and I digress. The soldier would wear a helmet made out of metal shaped like a domed bowl that had a brow guard on it, a neck guard, and cheek pieces. You'd wear a leather apron with metal studs attached to your sword belt to protect your privies. Your shield was in the form of curved rectangle made of wood. It had a center panel made of bronze boss with bronze edging. You would carry an iron-tipped pilum or spear, as we mentioned, an iron dagger, and an iron sword. If you think all this is heavy, you're right. It's about 67 pounds of material. You want to fight for the better part of a day with all that? And that doesn't include the sartina, or pack, that you'll also have to carry on the march that will include your pickaxe, your saw, your spade, and a basket for removing dirt, Also, you could set up camp when you got there. Roman soldiers did a huge amount of engineering, road work, bridge work. Some say they spent more time digging than fighting, especially when you consider the length and breadth of the Roman Empire and its road system. And you would do your share of marching. For sure you would. You'd be up before sunrise, be on the march before 4 or 5 in the morning, go about 16, 17 miles, and get to your destination by around noon. A regular march was called a Eustum march, and at times, you're expected to cover 20 miles in about 5 hours. Let's pause to do the math for this. That's 4 miles an hour, or 1 mile every 15 minutes. That, again, is a regular march. i got to say, as a former scoutmaster who's done his share of marching with a pack, I would just call it hell. I'm sure your average Roman soldier thought that too. Then there was the Magnum March. That would cover 25-30 miles in a day, I don't have any comparable word for that kind of march. That's fit for family hearing. Of course, I do marvel at Civil War units who would march according to similar standards, too. Dare I say, as I said above, you can get used to anything. But then, when you got to your destination, there was more. you spend the rest of the day building temporary fortifications for the night, getting water, foraging for food, building latrines, and caring for the pack animals. A legion of 6,000 would have 600 pack animals, beside private mounts and officers' pack animals. There were also four-wheeled wagons to carry forage and for use as ambulances for the sick and wounded, and they needed constant maintenance. So you do all this in the afternoon, eat, then sleep, unless it was your turn for guard duty, and then you'd get up the next morning and do it all over again. Camps would be laid out in a rectangle with two main streets crossing through it, and with the headquarters at the center. That was referred to as the Principia, or you should remember this word, the Praetorium. Yes, the Praetorium. It was the camp tent of the army leader. It was also where the procurator presided. And where was that? As we want to know in Jerusalem during the time of Jesus' trial, it was wherever the procurator was. If Pilate was at the fortress of Antonia, he was at the Praetorium. If he was at Herod the Great's palace, he was at the Praetorium. Unfortunately, therefore, because of the inherent mobility of that term, we have no definitive way of knowing where Pilate actually was at the time he presided over Jesus' trial. The Romans would put eight soldiers to a tent, a leather tent. The tentmates slept together, marched together, and went side by side in war together. They were called contubernales. Two would usually be on guard duty each night and they would rotate through the duty. That's why one-fifth of a legion's manpower was on guard duty at any one time. And then there was war. Units would form in ten or more ranks deep. They would put gaps in the line to allow individual units some maneuverability. The centurion would be standing in the front rank on the far right of the unit. Standard bearers would lead the unit into battle ahead of the line. They had to be visible at all times. An order to charge was usually given when the front unit was about 30 yards from the enemy. And at that point, you'd hurl your pilum and then ram the enemy line at speed and try to grind your shield into an opponent's belly or groin. And while this is going on, bows and arrows are flying all around, catapults were launching rocks and debris, and there was all the yelling and screaming you can't possibly imagine. Afterwards, they'd take prisoners, plunder the camp, strip the dead of all valuables, armor, weapons especially, and after particularly fierce battles, you'd cut the heads off your dead enemies and pile them up before a trophy. If you got wounded, you're in real trouble. Wounds tended to be fatal, and the surgeon couldn't protect you against infection. If you happen to survive and be disabled, you could at least get an honorable discharge, and you wouldn't have to pay taxes or perform any civic duties thereafter. At some point, once you had reached at least the age of 30... And you were capable of both reading and writing sufficiently to be able to read and give written orders, and you had distinguished yourself sufficiently to your peers and your superiors, you could be appointed centurion. Your pay would go way up, way up. You'd be making about 17 times as much as when you enlisted, 17 times! And it could go up from there. And you would have the kind of authority that others had previously exercised over you let's talk about the structure of the army so you get an idea of exactly how the centurion fits in it. And one thing to disabuse you of early on is the name centurion. It suggests it has something to do with the number 100, a century. Actually, it doesn't, although there's some debate about whether it may have originated that way. The word centurion is drawn from the unit actually led, a century which, oddly enough, does not, again, refer to 100 men, but rather to 80. Look, we do that too. A two by four is not actually two inches by four inches, people. You know that. A baker's dozen, it's not a dozen. And jumbo shrimp, good grief, it's never jumbo. So the centurion was the leader of the century, which was 80 men. Got it? Here's how a Roman legion then was divided up. Each legion had 10 cohorts, and each cohort had 480 men, which gets you 4,800 men. Add in 120 cavalry members, and you get about 5,000 men. Some legions might have had 6,000 if you bump these numbers in one way or another. But you can pause for a minute and think about these numbers when you think of what the demon said to Jesus through the mouth of the possessed man when Jesus asked him what his name was. He said, quote, my name is Legion, for we are many. He used that word Legion. So the guy had maybe what, five, 6,000 demons in him? Maybe. After all, when the demons left him, they entered into some 2,000 pigs and rushed off a cliff into the lake. So what do we got here? Two, maybe three demons for each pig? Yeah, sounds about right. At the time of Augustus Caesar, there were 28 legions altogether along with 250 auxilia units, which gives you a standing army of about 250,000 soldiers, more or less. This does not include the Praetorian Guard, which was the standing army in Rome to protect the emperor. That numbered about five or 6,000 crack soldiers at the time of Augustus. Now, some cohorts might, and might on a good day, when they were at full strength, have 600 men in it. That's why, if you remember from podcast number two on the arrest of Jesus, where we talked about this term and discussed whether there was an actual cohort in the Garden of Gethsemane, as John in his gospel seems to say was there. But as you'll also recall, most scholars just don't think John was referring to that same term and that he never in a million years meant to indicate that there were 600 soldiers in the Garden of Gethsemane to arrest Jesus, much less any troops serving under Pontius Pilate. So, for each of the ten cohorts, you had six centuries, meaning you'd have 60 centuries altogether. And since you had one centurion for each century, you'd have 60 centurions in the legion. Now, the most senior of these centurions would lead the first cohort, and the first cohort would lead the other nine cohorts. I know it's getting confusing, but bear with me. So you'd have the lead centurion was called the Primus Pilus. (laughs) He was in charge of the first century of the first cohort. And then there were various ranks among centurions in each of the other cohorts going on down. But look, let's just keep it simple. For every cohort, you'd have six centurions, and there'd be a hierarchy among them. At the top of the legion was a commander, usually filled by a senator or someone from the senatorial rank. He usually held command for about three or four years, and below them were five young military tribunes of equestrian rank. The tribunes usually served only for a brief period before going back to civic life. So your average long-term soldier would see lots of turnover at the top. You may recall that Pontius Pilate came from the equestrian rank, but we don't know much about his length of service or his tour or his duties. In any case, all of this explains why the centurion had such distinction and the term, quote, junior officer that's often used to describe them just really isn't quite descriptive. Everyone in the Legion knew, from the top officers down to the grunt soldiers on up, as we said, that the centurion was the real backbone of the Legion. They ran the day-to-day life of the men, they issued commands in the field, and if they happened to be designated as the praefectus castrorum, or camp prefect, they would actually be third in command of the entire legion, no matter what other tribune or officer was around. This would be the highest rank any enlisted legionary could ever hope to attain. Now, the long game for a centurion was retirement. If you managed to survive for 25, 26 years in service, you'd get a retirement package. You had, though, only a one in two chance of getting one because you had only a one in two chance of avoiding death from the ravages of war and military life, or from life's ailments in general. But if you did survive, then you had a pretty decent retirement package. You'd either get a chunk of farmland somewhere, or a large financial sum amounting to about eight or more years worth of pay, or you could get a mix of both. Centurions would usually be given land in the place where they were last stationed, This was also Rome's indirect way of helping to expand the empire. After the Battle of Philippi in 42 BC, Mark Antony set up a bunch of his officers with land grants and retirement there to help colonize the area. When the Apostle Paul wrote his letter to the Philippians about 100 years later, he was writing to a well-recognized community of retired military veterans. Philippi was our equivalent of Pensacola, San Diego, or Virginia Beach. And I'm sure Philippi had an abundant source of Starbucks and Denny's where old soldiers would hang out and solve all the problems of life together. And plus, you'd get a bronze diploma committing your service. I'm serious. A bronze diploma, notarized. It was in Latin, though, so you might have a hard time reading it. A lot of them got melted down in later times, but there are still some around in museums. I'd be curious to know whether your average Roman corporate employee on his retirement got a nice bronze sundial with a gold chain. I don't know. But let's think of the numbers again, and you can see why a career in the Army really wasn't such a bad thing. If you joined when you were 17, you could retire at 42, sign up at age 20, and you're out by 45. It's not a whole lot unlike military retirement today, but you got a whole lot better chance of making it to that age than they did. So, in light of all these things, what, if anything, can we conclude about the centurions we meet in Scripture? Well, a few things. He was at least 30 years old. He was probably not a city boy. He may or may not be married. He knew what an oath meant because he took it annually. He swore allegiance to the Roman Emperor. He was either a Roman citizen or he had the hope of becoming one on retirement. He was taller than average, way more athletic than average and even more athletic than his peers. He was excellent with a spear and a sword. He knew something about engineering, road making, bridge building. He could march like hell. He had absolute power over his subordinates. When he gave orders, he could expect they'd be followed. He likely had beaten soldiers under him and may have even put in some to death. He knew how to kill and how to defend against killing. In fact, he would see death a lot. He would see it through his enemies. He'd see it through his fellow soldiers and close friends. He was not afraid of massive Celts. He had to project confidence and courage to his men in the face of any danger. He marched at the front right of his unit, the eyes of 80 men always on him, their ears at his beck and call. He knew his odds of surviving any given battle were not good, but he accepted those odds and gambled to beat them. And like most soldiers, he gambled. And like most soldiers, he had a piety of sorts, some dim, very confused belief in a god or a set of gods, and was highly superstitious because of them. He had the respect and admiration of the men under him. He had the respect and admiration of the senator and tribunes over him. He got along with the other five centurions in his cohort and the other 59 centurions in his legion. He was comfortable mixing with many other races and cultures, and probably a connoisseur of international cuisine. He depended on his pay to live, and he had a budget to live on it. He was hoping he'd live to retirement, get some land or some money, a local girl, which by the way was something they tended to take already on an informal, non-legal basis, and then he could hope to enjoy the good life. Don't we all? Let's now turn to the centurions we meet in the New Testament seven of them altogether, including the one who's at the focus of our inquiry. And each of these accounts will tell us something that will now be familiar to us, and also something new. And I'm going to give you a spoiler alert here. They all come off pretty doggone well and give us much to admire, and that's at a minimum. I don't want to get overly romantic, no pun intended, actually it was, about these centurions, But make no mistake that their role in Judea was to help govern the Roman rule over the Jews, and it was a rule that was often brutal, and in any case, utterly despised by the locals. Did you know that a Roman soldier could force a Jew to carry his backpack for a mile? These are backpacks that we've been talking about that were obscenely heavy. He could. That's why Jesus said, And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him too. Sounds absurd, doesn't it? Not really, if you think like Jesus does. How do you think a Roman soldier would be inclined to regard you if you went an extra mile for him when you didn't have to? Sure, some might think of you as a doormat, but others might, they just might stop and wonder about this extraordinary and unexpected act of charity and, well, be changed by it. After all, you'd now have two whole miles of evangelizing available to you, too. So, soldier, have you heard about this Jesus of Nazareth? But most people, of course, were not like this, and centurions knew they were in hostile, enemy-infested territory. It took every bit of the brutal strength they had, and projected, to keep that festering, seething land and its everlasting, stubborn people from bubbling over. They didn't like the people they were supposed to keep in order, and the people didn't like them either, probably more so. And there's one other detail we need to mention, at least generally, about the centurions we meet here. They were from an auxilia, an auxiliary unit, not any specific Roman legion. They trained like them, they were organized like them, but remember, they came from the local province and generally were not citizens. They were hoping to become citizens, And they were perfectly happy to earn their retirement packages by working against the indigenous locals whom they hated. They were typically Syrians, Samaritans, and historians estimate that probably no more than 10% of the Roman military there was actually from Rome or the Italian peninsula. In all other respects, we can assume these auxiliary centurions met all of the other qualifications for physical and mental toughness and exemplary leadership that we discussed above. Imagine, if you will, the Indian army of British India, but with fewer friendly Indians. They were headquartered at Caesarea, about 60 miles north of Jerusalem on the coast, but they were also stationed at the Fortress of Antonia, built adjacent to and looking down over the temple along the northwest wall of Jerusalem. Herod the Great built that fortress in honor of his patron, Mark Antony, thus the name Fortress of Antonia. Herod did everything in grand scale, and the Antonia appears to have been built that way also, except that historians disagree on how big it was and what it looked like. Most accept Josephus's account that it was big enough to hold an entire legion, some five-six 6000 soldiers. We do know that the Jewish high priest's robes were kept there and not in the temple. Let's then turn to the centurions of the New Testament. Other than our centurion at the crucifixion, we have six others referenced, one from Luke chapter 7, and the others all from the Acts of the Apostles, which Luke also wrote. So Luke is the one for us to thank for the vast majority of our knowledge about centurions in the New Testament. In the Gospel of Luke chapter 7, we're treated to an exquisite story about a centurion. This was the one who sent a messenger to Jesus asking him to just say the word and cure his servant. Here's the full text from the Revised Standard Version. When he, Jesus, had completed all his teaching in the hearing of the people, he went to Capernaum. Now a centurion slave who was highly regarded by him was sick and about to die. When he heard about Jesus, he sent some Jewish elders to him, asking him to come and save the life of his slave. When they came to Jesus, they strongly urged him, saying, He is worthy for you to grant this to him, for he loves our nation, and it was he who built us our synagogue. Now Jesus started on his way with them, but already, when he was not yet far from the house, the centurion sent friends, saying to him, Lord, do not trouble yourself further, for I am not worthy for you to enter under my roof. For that reason, I did not even consider myself worthy to come to you but just say the word and my servant shall be healed. For I also am a man placed under authority with soldiers under myself. And I say to this one, go. And he goes. And to another, come. And he comes. And to my slave, do this. And he does it. Now, when Jesus heard this, he was amazed at him and turned and said to the crowd that was following him, I say to you, not even in Israel have I found such great faith. And when those who had been sent returned to the house, they found the slave in good health. Now, there are several points about this passage that resonate with what we've discussed above. First, the centurion gave orders for others to go see Jesus. He didn't go himself. That would have been typical of a centurion who had others under his command. Second, the centurion had a slave, and he loved him. I don't want to get into the nuances of slavery as found in the New Testament. They're exceedingly complex and have really nothing to do with our modern notions of what slavery is and all the issues that he accompanied. It. But I will say this, there was a centurion who had some kind of servant under him that he certainly didn't regard as property, but as someone he truly loved. And he loved so much that he sent people under his command to someone he was sure would heal him, on an order alone, and without having to even come visit him. Third, the centurion had financial means, as we also understood with the rank of a centurion. Indeed, he had substantial means, because the elders introduced him to Jesus as one who had, quote, built us our synagogue. A Roman centurion as a Jewish philanthropist? I thought they all hated each other, so you say. Well, not all the time and not universally. That kind of thing happened from time to time. And could a centurion afford something like that all in his own pay? It's possible. But other options are possible too. Maybe he inherited a pile of money from Uncle Ephraim. Who knows? Fact is, he was generous with it. Fact is also, he built the one in Capernaum. Now, isn't that interesting? That's where Jesus grew up. Was this the same place where Jesus unrolled the scrolls and said the reading in Isaiah applied to him? We don't know. But there is archaeological evidence for that very same synagogue, and it dates to the same period. Fourth, the centurion was able to send Jewish elders as his emissaries. And they were most effective and earnest emissaries, too, given the details they pressed on Jesus. Clearly, they loved the centurion, too. That term, elders is a pretty specific reference to the leading Jewish classes there. Were they Sadducees or Pharisees? Don't know. On the one hand, most elders were Sadducees, or at least in Jerusalem they were, maybe not in the sticks up north. On the other hand, Pharisees would have been a lot more concerned about getting a synagogue than the Sadducees would have been. Sadducees want nice roads, aqueducts. So, elders as Sadducees or Pharisees, take your pick. Fifth, Jesus agreed to visit the centurion, and someone must have returned quick word back to him because the centurion demurred and sent a message back to Jesus. Tell him, in effect, he he doesn't need to come here. Just remind him I'm a man of authority, and so I know his order will be just as good as if he came here himself. Most certainly he was a man of authority. He was used to giving orders, and he expected his orders to be followed. And he understood that if Jesus gave orders, his orders would be followed, too, even for healings. Sixth, the centurion's humility is stunning, and even Jesus expresses shock over it. The text says he was amazed. If that isn't high praise, I don't know what is. Who gets to amaze Jesus? A tiny handful of people. Well, this centurion is one of them but his humility is also somewhat understandable in view of his rank. He deferred to people above him, senators, tribunes, members of the equestrian rank. His job was to do whatever he could to avoid bothering them. Sure seems consistent here. The only time he would have ever bothered a superior with a request was when he felt he lacked enough authority to decide on his own. Like any good military officer, then and only then would he seek confirmation from higher authority. And so he did this to Jesus here. For reasons not recorded, he understood Jesus was a higher authority and that he had power to do something that he himself was powerless to do, heal his beloved servant. For that reason, Jesus is, quote, amazed. And he turns to the crowd following him and says, quote, I say to you. Not even in Israel have I found such great faith." End quote. Seventh, Jesus does what the centurion requests. He doesn't come to centurion's house. Can you imagine? The centurion does not want Jesus to come to his house. He's not like Simon who wants Jesus there so he can throw a nice party for him. He's a humble centurion who does not want the grand senator coming into his tent. Of course, he knows Jesus more than even a grand senator. He may not know exactly what he is, that he's the Messiah, the true Son of God. But he knows he's not worthy to have him come under his roof. It's this same humility, the humility of a centurion who is not a member of the tribe of Israel that we are to assume in advance of Holy Communion and say, in a paraphrase of these very same words, quote, Lord I am not worthy for you to enter under my roof, but just say the word, and my soul shall be healed. In other words, thanks to the words spoken by a centurion, we are reminded of the special posture we must have when we ask Jesus to come into our souls and heal us too. And need we guess how the rest of the story played out with the centurion when he saw that, yes, Jesus sent an order, and yes, his slave was healed? Do you think he had any trouble accepting the good news of the kingdom of God and the Christos there to proclaim it? The second reference to a centurion in the Gospels is the last one I want to talk about because that's the account of the centurion at the crucifixion. Let's pass over that for now and talk about the other five that we see in the Acts of the Apostles. The first centurion we meet there is a gem, Cornelius. He appears in Acts chapter 10, And the entire chapter is devoted to discussing him and his conversion, the first Gentile to be converted after the resurrection of Christ. I'm going to read verses 1 through 8, and I'll let you read the rest on your own. But here's the first part of his story, and note the details it relates about him. Now, there was a man in Caesarea named Cornelius, a centurion of what was called the Italian cohort, a devout man and one who feared God with all his household, and made many charitable contributions to the Jewish people, and prayed to God continually. About the ninth hour of the day, he clearly saw in a vision an angel of God who had just come in and said to him, Cornelius! And he looked at him intently and became terrified, and said, What is it, Lord? And he said to him, Your prayers and charitable gifts— have ascended as a memorial offering before God. Now dispatch some men to Joppa, and send for a man named Simon, who is also called Peter. He is staying with a tanner named Simon, whose house is by the sea. When the angel who spoke to him left, he summoned two of his servants and a devout soldier from his personal attendants, And after he had explained everything to them, he sent them to Joppa. Now, this passage goes on to recount Peter's famous vision too, where he sees a great sheet coming down out of the sky with all kinds of animals on it. And he hears a voice saying, "'Get up, kill, and eat.'" It included pigs and cloven-foot animals. The vision perplexed him. And it was at that moment, three men appeared at his house sent by Cornelius. They said this, quote, "'Cornelius, a centurion, a righteous and God-fearing man, well spoken of by the entire nation of the Jews, was divinely directed by a holy angel to send for you to come to his house and hear a message from you. Peter invited them in, and it says he, quote, gave them lodging. I'm assuming that because of his vision, he got up the next morning and cooked up a great breakfast of bacon and eggs for all of them. Can you imagine what a Jew thought when he tasted bacon for the first time? I recall a Jewish radio host once saying that the sole reason God made bacon was to annoy the Jews. Anyhow, Peter agreed to go with them and some other Christians from Joppa. It says Cornelius was expecting them and had called together his relatives and close friends. When Peter entered, Cornelius, it says, quote, met him and fell at his feet and worshipped him. Peter then says, in effect, stop it, I'm just a man. And he explains that God has shown to him that he is not allowed to call any person unholy or unclean. So he says, I've come. Why did you send to me? Which is kind of strange, right? Cornelius tells him to come and doesn't tell him why he wants him to come. And Peter comes without knowing why he is to come. So Cornelius recounts his vision to him. Thanks, Peter, for coming and says, quote, we are all here present before God to hear everything that you have been commanded by the Lord. Quote. Peter then gives a magnificent speech where he recounts how he now understands that God shows no partiality among people and that God had ordered him to preach to all people and to testify that Jesus was the one appointed by God as judge of the living and the dead, and that through his name everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins. And here's how the chapter concludes. While Peter was still speaking these words, the Holy Spirit fell upon all those who were listening to the message. All the Jewish believers who came with Peter were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit had also been poured out on the Gentiles, for they were hearing them speaking with tongues and exalting God. Then Peter responded Surely no one can refuse the water for these to be baptized who have received the Holy Spirit just as we did, can he? And he ordered them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Then they asked him to stay on for a few days. Now, there's a lot to unpack here, and I'm not going to do it here. But I wanted you to hear this account and reflect on the great mystery of God and how he chose to make, of all possible Gentiles in the world, a centurion as the first one to be baptized and to receive the gift of faith and eternal life. Of course, by now you recognized all the characteristics of Cornelius as a centurion, sending subordinates to send a message, anticipating the news and response, being prepared to act by having all of his friends and relatives assemble for Peter when Peter would arrive, his humility before a superior officer when Peter did arrive, and his submission to orders that he be baptized. It's all rather extraordinary when you think about it, truly extraordinary. A guy who thought he had seen it all had really seen nothing until now, and now he really does see it all. We next meet a couple of other centurions, but they're not named. The first one referred to is in Acts chapter 22. This is where Paul is in the temple in Jerusalem and it says that some Jews from Asia saw him there and whipped up the crowd against him, dragged him out of the temple and were planning to kill him. The commander of the cohort, who appears to have been in quarters at the Antonia next door, took some soldiers and centurions and stopped the beating. The commander couldn't tell who had done what in all the commotion. So he had Paul put in chains and was about to have him brought into the barracks. The commander thought Paul was some Egyptian who had stirred up a revolt and led 4,000 men of the assassins out into the wilderness. Paul said, Heck no, I'm a Jew of Tarsus, and all I want to do is talk to the people. So, somewhat surprisingly, the commander then let Paul speak on the stairs outside the temple. So Paul's giving an account of his conversion, and all seems going well, until he mentions the martyrdom of Stephen and how God had told him, Paul, to go preach to the Gentiles. Then all hell broke loose. People started shouting and yelling and throwing dirt in the air, it says. And at this, the commander had had enough. He orders Paul to be brought to the barracks and be, quote, interrogated by flogging is how it reads. Yes, interrogated by flogging so that he would find out the reason why they were all shouting against him that way. Apparently, the commander didn't think Paul was credible and wanted to beat him a bit to get the truth out. And then here's this really interesting passage starting at verse 25. But when they stretched him out with straps... Paul said to the centurion who was standing by, Is it lawful for you to flog a man who is a Roman and uncondemned? When the centurion heard this, he went to the commander and told him, saying, What are you about to do? For this man is a Roman. The commander came and said to Paul, Tell me, are you a Roman? And he said, Yes. The commander answered, I acquired this citizenship for a large sum of money. And Paul said, but I was actually born a citizen. Therefore, those who were about to interrogate him immediately backed away from him. And the commander also was afraid when he found out that he was a Roman and because he had put him in chains. Now, this is really cool when you think about it. So the commander had decided to proceed with the flogging and left it to the centurion to do so inside the barracks. But the centurion was prepared to countermand him. When Paul said he was a Roman, the centurion intervened, left, and approached the commander. When Paul confirmed it directly to the commander, the commander backed off. So, a centurion who used to give beatings personally all the time stepped in to prevent Paul from getting one here. That's pretty remarkable and shows he was not the jaded soldier one might think he was who might feel that everyone around him needed a beating for some reason or another. Clearly not a guy either who says, hey, I'm just following orders. Of course, there was this bet. It says the commander, quote, was afraid when he found out Paul was a Roman. Chances are the commander would have some splaining to do if he had to take it on himself to beat a Roman citizen without giving him a fair trial first. And his trusty centurion spared them both the splainin'. But the commander was still curious. So he kept Paul overnight for his safety and then, quote, ordered, it's a curious word, he ordered the chief priests and all the Sanhedrin to assemble. And he brought Paul, quote, down, it says, and placed him before them. That's an interesting term, of course, but it fits because the fortress was above the temple and the Sanhedrin usually met in the temple precincts, except during Jesus' trial when we're told they met in the house of the high priest but the story continues with good drama. Paul looked intently at the council and said, quote, brothers, I have lived my life with an entirely good conscience before God up to this day, end quote. That was enough for the high priest. Not Joseph Caiaphas. He had then been replaced by another high priest, Ananias. Ananias gave an order to those sitting near Paul to punch him in the face. Remember, it was a former high priest, Annas, who had ordered Jesus punched in the face, too, for his insolent remark during his preliminary hearing. Paul was not quite so restrained and thundered back with a worthy rejoinder, God is going to strike you, you whitewashed wall. And then Paul got about as clever as anyone could be in his situation. He noticed there were both Sadducees and Pharisees there, and those two groups, he knew, didn't really get along well. He knew the Sadducees didn't believe in the resurrection of the dead and that the Pharisees hated them for it. He also knew the Pharisees did believe in the resurrection of the dead, and the Sadducees thought they were stupid for believing it. So he turned his speech this way in words to this effect. Let's get clear, people. The only reason you're harassing me is because you know I'm a Pharisee and that I believe in the resurrection of the dead. Ha! A huge fight breaks out between the Sadducees and Pharisees. Don't you love it? And the commander, who's hearing about all of this, probably with a fair amount of bewilderment, ordered his troops to, quote, go down and take him away from them by force and bring him, Paul, into the barracks, end quote, again. But the drama ramps up. A group of assassins met, 40 of them, it says, and vowed they would not eat or drink until they had killed Paul. And they went to the chief priests and elders and told them to tell the commander to bring Paul back down so they could, quote, investigate his case more thoroughly. Can't you see their yellow teeth and smell their stinky fasting breath when they further confided with the chief priests? Quote, we'll kill him when he gets near the place. But Paul's nephew... Paul's nephew, by the way, we don't know who he was, but Paul's nephew heard the conspiracy and got permission to enter the barracks and see Paul. And here's where we meet a centurion again. Same one? We don't know. But here's the passage at verse 17. Paul called one of the centurions to himself and said, Take this young man to the commander, for he has something to report to him. So he took him and led him to the commander and said, Paul the prisoner called me over to him and asked me to bring this young man to you because he has something to tell you. The commander took him by the hand and stepping aside, began to inquire of him privately. What is it that you have to report to me? And he said, the Jews have agreed to ask you to bring Paul down tomorrow to the council as though they were going to inquire somewhat more thoroughly about him. So do not listen to them for more than 40 of them are in hiding to ambush him. And these men have put themselves under an oath not to eat or drink until they kill him. And now they are ready and waiting for assurance from you. Then the commander let the young man go, instructing him, Tell no one that you have notified me of these things. And he called to him two of the centurions and said, Get two hundred soldiers ready by the third hour of the night to proceed to Caesarea with seventy horsemen and two hundred spearmen. They were also to provide mounts to put Paul on and bring him safely to Felix the governor. And then he wrote a letter to Felix telling him the history. Again, this is a pretty remarkable story and shows the honor of the centurion. And it also confirms the authority the centurion had because the commander sent two of them to command 200 soldiers. Remember, they're used to commanding about 80 soldiers each and have them ready to leave at three o'clock in the morning along with 70 horsemen and 200 spearmen, and march all the way to Caesarea, 60 miles northwest on the coast. I'm going to guess that was a march magnum, and they were expected to get there in two days. Further, they were expecting a rabble, and the centurions were entrusted to defend against it. When you think of the several hundred thousands of Jews right there inside the walls of Jerusalem, right next door to them, who could be whipped up in a religious frenzy to storm the fortress and drag Paul out of there, This was no overreach on the commander's part. And so you hear you have centurions, two of them, ready to go to battle for Paul if need be, and die for him if need be, and to at least march 660 miles for him on a moment's notice without recorded complaint. The next centurion we meet is Julius, the other centurion known by name. And he pops up in chapter 27 of the Acts of the Apostles. Here's the opening verse, quote, Now when it was decided that we would sail for Italy, they proceeded to turn Paul and some other prisoners over to a centurion of the Augustan cohort named Julius. All right, so he's named Julius, and he was with the Augustan cohort. That cohort and the Italian cohort mentioned above were two of five cohorts stationed in Caesarea. Unfortunately, we don't know a whole lot more about that cohort, although there's both literary and archaeological evidence for it. While you probably think I like to go down a lot of rabbit holes, I'm going to spare you that pain here. What we know about Paul and Julius is a whole lot more detailed and more interesting. They put out to sea, and then next day it says, quote, We put in at Sidon. And Julius treated Paul with consideration and allowed him to go to his friends and receive care. Now, this Julius fellow must have been extraordinary. Luke not only mentions him by name, but Luke goes out of his way to say he, quote, treated Paul with consideration. Quick rabbit hole. Where was Sidon? Well, it was in modern day Lebanon. It was an ancient Phoenician port city about 25 miles south of Beirut. And it was where that wicked Jezebel came from centuries earlier. Sorry, let's move on. So they put out to sea again, got near Cyprus, landed at Myra, and then it says, quote, the centurion found an Alexandrian ship sailing for Italy, and he put us aboard it, end quote. Notice how he had authority to put passengers on board a ship without having bought any tickets for it? They sailed for many more days, and then the seas got dangerous. And Paul, shall we say, got a little freaked out and admonished the crew about going on. But this time, the centurion countermanded Paul. It says, quote, But the centurion was more persuaded by the pilot and the captain of the ship than by what was being said by Paul. Now, you can appreciate Paul's concern, but after all, he was a tent maker, not a seasoned military veteran, and he should have, as the saying goes, stuck to his own knitting. But the continuing account is remarkably detailed, and I, for one, just get exceedingly frustrated by it, only because I would gladly trade these details for other details Luke might have told us in his gospel. It's filled with details about how they jettisoned cargo, where they let down anchor, how many anchors they let down, four, how deep the water was, 20 fathoms on one sounding, 15 on another, 276 people were on this ship too, he says. Good grief, Luke. You couldn't have given us comparable details about the loaves and fishes? But I maligned Paul a bit about his nautical advice. He claims to have been right about the potential loss of possessions, but he assures them they'll all be safe because it is God's will that he stand before Caesar. But conditions got ugly again near Malta. The ship had run aground, the stern was breaking up from the waves, and so the soldiers had decided to kill all the prisoners so none of them would swim away and escape. Our hero then intervenes, quote, but the centurion wanting to bring Paul safely through kept them from accomplishing their intention and commanded that those who could swim were to jump overboard first and get to land and the rest were to follow, some on planks and others on various things from the ship. And so it happened that they were all brought safely to land, end quote. For some reason, I just have the Mandalorian in mind here. Anyhow, He eventually gets Paul to Rome. You really need to read it to get all the details. But here was this centurion figure accompanying Paul, protecting Paul, and then watching Paul cure the sick, shake off vipers, yeah, we skipped over those parts of the story, preach the gospel, and stay with a host of so-called, quote, brothers and sisters. You think any of this may have rubbed off on him? I'd like to think so. It'd be tempting to canonize him, but the church hasn't, so we won't either. But we can sure hope to see him in heaven, can't we? Don't you think Paul hopes so? With all that we now know about the character, training, and background of centurions in general, and even through the descriptions of some of them in the Acts of the Apostles, let's turn to the particular centurion at the scene of the crucifixion. His rule at the crucifixion is mentioned in all three of the Synoptic Gospels with slightly different formations that we'll address. But let's get right to the texts of each of them, because the texts are short, even if usually meaningful, which is why I thought it would be worthwhile to spend the time talking about the character, training, and background of centurions in general, so we could put these few simple words in context to our centurion here. Matthew tells it this way, chapter 27, verses 54 to 56, quote, But the centurion and those who with him, were keeping guard over Jesus, having seen the earth shaking and these happenings, feared exceedingly, saying, quote, truly, this was God's Son, end quote. I want you to know some details here before we move on to the other accounts. Matthew points out that the centurion was not alone, of course, but was with others who were keeping guard over Jesus. And he made his statement together with the other soldiers after having, quote, seen the earth shaking and these happenings, which included a bunch of scary things like rocks being rent, tombs being opened, bodies of the dead being raised, darkness coming over the land. And he must have also heard some screaming from the chief priests over the wall when the veil of the temple was torn in two. Understandably, then, the passage says he, quote, feared exceedingly. That's quite a statement for the kind of bravery we'd be expected to see from your average centurion. And with all this, he says, truly, this was God's son. Mark is the short gospel, you remember, and Mark puts this a tad shorter than Matthew did. He puts it this way, at chapter 15, verses 39 to 41, quote, But the centurion who had been standing there opposite him, having seen that he thus expired, said, quote, truly this man was God's son. Now those details are both different and interesting. Mark puts the centurion in a physical location, opposite to Jesus, he says, as if he were facing directly on him from the front of the cross. I don't know if you find that uh, interesting based on what we know about centurions, but recall that their place in battle and marching formation is out in front of their unit and on the right. Is there a connection here? I don't know, and I haven't come across any commentary on it. A centurion always in front of his unit, this centurion out in front of Jesus, facing his commander, leading a brand new unit of multicultural Gentile recruits, out in front of them, out in front of us, facing the cross, ready to engage in battle, ready to lead us in battle, Lots worth pondering. Lots. But let's move on. Mark doesn't say anything about the centurion having seen all the happenings like Matthew did. Instead, he simply has a centurion make his proclamation after Jesus had died. And his words are identical to Matthew's. Quote, truly, this man was God's son. Then there's Luke and his account. Luke a physician, and a Syrian had this to say about it all with a tiny twist. At chapter 23, verses 47 and 49, he says, quote, but the centurion, having seen this happening, see how he puts the happening in the singular, not in the plural, like Matthew does, which still seems indefinite enough to encompass all the scary things too. So as he says, quote, but the centurion, having seen this happening, was glorifying God, saying, quote, certainly this man was just, end quote. Interesting. So while Matthew has the centurion seeing all of this and fearing exceedingly, Luke doesn't say anything about fear, but says instead he was glorifying God. There's certainly nothing inconsistent with the two, The centurion could have been both exceedingly fearful and have been glorifying God, too. Imagine someone dropping out of the sky waiting for a parachute to open for the first time. They might feel the same way. Haven't we all experienced something at one time or another in our lives that made us exceedingly fearful and yet allowed us to see the glory of God at the same time? I don't think it should be any surprise that our centurion felt that way here. St. Augustine offers this pithy explanation, Who then does not see that by fearing he glorified God? What's also interesting is that the centurion's seeing included hearing. He'd been standing near the cross over the course of, what, some three hours? And heard Jesus speak at least seven times, as those words are recorded collectively in the gospel accounts. Was he impressed by what he heard? that Jesus said, Father, forgive them, or today you'll be with me in paradise, or woman, behold your son, or my God, why have you forsaken me, or I thirst, or it is finished, or Father, into your hands I commend my spirit. None of those words would seem to be particularly engaging, at least to a guard standing by your average crucifixion scene. And yet, There seems to be something efficacious about those words, at least on this centurion. In St. Paul's letter to the Romans, chapter 10, verse 7, Paul says, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. So here's this centurion hearing the very words of God from the incarnate word of God. He got faith by hearing as well as by seeing. But plenty of other people were standing nearby, they heard what he heard, they saw what he saw, and they weren't moved like he was. Why is that? I'm afraid that question would plunge us deep into the mystery of faith and conversion. How and why it occurs, under what conditions it occurs, and I'm just going to leave it there as a mystery to contemplate. But Luke has the centurion saying something slightly different than Matthew and Mark have him saying. For them, at chapter 23, verse 47, Matthew and Mark have the centurion saying, truly this was God's son. But Luke has him saying this, quote, certainly this man was just. See, Luke uses the term just. He says, this man was just. But he was saying this while he was also, quote, glorifying God. So what do scholars make of all these words and these distinctions? Well, a lot, because that's the job of a scholar. Figure out what to say that's different from everyone else, then write papers so they can advance up the academic food chain. And the more shocking things they say, the better chance they have of moving up the chain, especially if people at the top of the chain like shocking things. Yeah, I know, you think I'm a cynic. I'm not. Just to ask any honest college professor, they'll tell you the same thing. And therefore... I'm sorry, but I just don't have the patience to deal with so-called scholars who spend their time tearing apart Holy Scripture, casting doubt about things Christians have accepted as true for 2,000 years. So you should know there are all kinds of so-called scholars out there at the top and bottom of their respective food chains who say that the gospel accounts of the centurion are pure fiction and were invented 30, 40, 50 years after the fact to impress other Christians cheering on in the bleachers. I'm just not going to pay any attention to them, and I really don't think they deserve the title scholars either, even though they write lots of books and articles and go to conferences where they laugh and talk and congratulate each other with their shocking conclusions. As far as I'm concerned, they can all do what a very pious theology professor friend of mine says they should do in his classical Canadian parlance, quote, they should all go piss off. I am perfectly content to accept the gospel accounts as ancient historical accounts, and I accept these ancient historical accounts as true. For a thousand reasons we don't need to get into here, these are very credible, accurate, and historical accounts, and I don't fret about slight differences in words regarding those accounts. I am pretty sure, as a matter of historical fact, based on my own life experience, and I hope it would be your life experience too, that when the centurion was standing at the foot of Jesus' cross and said the words, truly this is God's son, that he didn't just shut his mouth and say nothing else. For something as astonishing as what he had just experienced, and what he had just said, it seems highly likely he said it more than once and in different ways, including the way Luke records it as, quote, this man was just, after having just been glorifying God. The fact that he was seen to have been glorifying God suggests, even at the literal level, that he was, in fact, saying this more than once. St. Augustine, by the way, noticed this too. He says, quote, We ought to understand that both these things were said by the centurion and that one evangelist related one, another, another, end quote. So, can we not get bothered by the different verbiage that exists among Matthew, Mark, and Luke? St. Augustine, for one, certainly wasn't, and he harmonizes his readings this way. He says that Matthew's inclusion of the centurion's survey of all the happenings that happened gives, as he says, quote, full scope for Luke's expression, because he wondered at the Lord's death, for this, among the rest, was wonderful. What he's saying, I think, is that Matthew and Luke both have the centurion seeing and hearing the same thing. But Matthew's centurion draws a more complete conclusion than Luke's centurion did after beholding all the wonderful events. It's worth some scholarly humor to note what St. Jerome made of the centurion's profession of faith. St. Jerome, as you may know, was the first to translate the Bible into the common Latin tongue, and he was something of a curmudgeon, saint though he was. He uses this passage to take a dig at one of the reigning heretics of the time, Arius, who was quite popular in the 3rd century and no doubt would have had many honorary doctorates from many leading universities today, even Catholic ones, who insisted that Jesus was not divine, but only human. So, St. Jerome makes this gloss on the text, Observe that in the very midst of the offense of his passion, the centurion acknowledges the Son of God, while Arius in the church proclaims him a creature. Take that, you heretic You! John, we should note, does not record this account of the centurion, but remember, John is thought to have written his account after Matthew, Mark, and Luke had written theirs. And John assumed his readers knew all of those details and was writing to add additional ones, especially details for the benefit of those who are already believers. But let's take a hard look at the words recorded in any case, because I think there's really some beautiful insights that some scholars have pulled out of them. And you may recall from my earlier podcast episodes, I rely a great deal on the biblical scholarship of Father Raymond Brown and his monumental work, The Death of the Messiah, because his work is really an anthology of all scriptural scholars anywhere who've published something to say about the Passion narratives, including the pseudo-scholars I denounced above. And his treatment of the words of the centurion here are exceedingly rich and detailed. I wish we had time to go into all of his comments about it, but I'm afraid we just can't, given our limitations but let me try to go into some of them so you can see what I mean. The terms of the centurion that are used to proclaim Jesus as, quote, God's son are in Greek, and they've generated a lot of commentary, not because of the meaning of God's son, but because there's no article before them. The son of the God, as Joseph Caiaphas put it to Jesus when he was in front of the Sanhedrin. This is the same way, by the way, that the demon puts it to Jesus when he encounters him too. Caiaphas's question, as we saw, was a direct allusion to the prophecies in the book of Daniel, but the centurion statement here has no article before the words Huios, which translates very clearly as, quote, God's son. You see that from the theo word, right, because that's a word that refers directly to God. But there is no the before that word making the words what is called Anarthic. Anarthic. Why is that? Well, we have a couple of clues. For one thing, this is the formulation the disciples used after seeing Jesus walk on the water. Quote, truly, this is God's son, they said. Mark opens his gospel with Jesus being baptized and with God himself declaring that Jesus was his son. Mark now closes Jesus's life with a human being repeating what God had declared. As Father Brown puts it, quote, the confession by the centurion and the guards is a continuation of the confession of believers. Let's hit the pause button here just to clarify a concern that maybe you're rumbling around the heads of some of you, this phrase, God's son. What's with that? I thought Jesus was God. Well, yeah, of course he was, and the phrase, God's son, did not mean otherwise. In fact, it pointed precisely to his divinity, because one would have to be divine to be God's son in the full sense of the term. Naturally, it took some time, after even the Gospels were written, to work out what we call today as the Trinity or the Trinitarian doctrine. Of course, those words don't appear anywhere in the text of the New Testament, But the truths of it certainly do. And the centurion's testimony to God's son is every bit as testimonial to Jesus as the incarnate word of God as any other believing Christians is today. Nor does it appear that these words are the kind of expression that were then given to Augustus Caesar, who was in parts of Rome considered a son of God because he was the son of Julius Caesar who had been deified. Among other things, chances are good, as we've explained above, this centurion wasn't even a Roman, in which case he'd even be less likely to have that notion on his lips when he said these words. St. Thomas Aquinas, in his commentary on the Gospel of Matthew, offers no hesitation about what the centurion meant and how Matthew regarded the statement when he recorded it. St. Thomas regards the centurion's statement as a true confession that represents the Gentile nations. He says, quote, which confessed Christ with a solitary fear. Church fathers also recognize the centurion as expressing the faith of the church in this simple statement. Pope Benedict XVI echoes this same point too. In his marvelous book on Jesus of Nazareth, he writes, quote, "'At the foot of the cross, "'the church of the Gentiles comes into being. "'Through the cross, the Lord gathers people together "'to form a new community of the worldwide church.'" through the suffering son, they recognize the true God. But to return to the words and the Anarthic observation, there's a comprehensive 1985 study that Father Brown draws from by an E.C. Caldwell, where Caldwell says in so many words that when a Greek article does not precede a noun, which precedes a verb, are you with me? (laughs) When you don't have a the before the noun, and the noun is before the verb, then the noun is meant to be really doggone important. Any example come to mind? Yeah. When the angel Gabriel comes to Mary, Gabriel is anarthic. He refers to, quote, son of God and son of the Most High, without an article, without any the or a So when the centurion is confessing to God's son, he most certainly does not mean to refer to him as a son of God, but as something singularly important. So why do Matthew, Mark, and Luke bother to mention that it was a centurion at all, especially since they don't mention his name? Why not just say a soldier like they did elsewhere? Ah, well, here's some great insights. First, Everyone knew who was hearing these Gospels back then that centurions were a decent, respectable class of soldiers in the Roman army. In fact, as we point out, the highest rank one could attain to from the bottom up. And now you know that too. So think about this in the context of the crucifixion account. As Jesus is hanging on the cross, the chief priests and the scribes came by that crucifixion site and they said this, quote, Let the Messiah, the King of Israel, come down from the cross in order that we may see and believe, end quote. Get that? See and believe. Here were the leaders of God's chosen people seeing but not believing and demanding a sign so they could see and believe. So Jesus dies. And then what do you have? You have a centurion who's most definitely not a leader of God's chosen people, but he's most certainly a leader of recognized stature, and he is now one who sees what God has done and believes, and he needs no other sign. St. Cyril of Alexandria sees in the centurion an immediate fulfillment of our Lord's prophecy in John chapter 12. Quote, "'When I have been lifted up from the earth,' I shall draw all men to me. John chapter 12, verse 32. And of course, there's more. You remember that Jesus echoed Psalm 22 on the cross when he said, My God, my God, why have you abandoned me? As we saw, that psalm ends up being a psalm of hope, not a psalm of despair. And the psalm ends this way at verse 27 quote, all the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord, and all the families of the nations shall bow down before him, End quote. This centurion then was, to quote Father Brown again, a symbol for the incipient fulfillment of Jesus' promise in verse 13, chapter 10 of Mark's gospel, that the gospel would be preached to all the nations. Here we have a centurion, a representative of all the nations, confessing the divinity of Christ. And get this, he was standing under a cross, which had mocked Jesus with the words, the King of the Jews. Yet he could look past that sign, past that mockery, and still proclaim Jesus as God's Son. He and the other soldiers could look past that sign, because, as St. Alphonsus Liguori says, These soldiers were the first fruits of the Gentiles who embraced the faith of Jesus Christ after they had put him to death, though through his merits they had grace to understand their sin and to hope for pardon. Now here's another interesting scriptural tidbit. Did you notice how Matthew and Mark began the centurion's phrase with truly, truly this man was God's son. So guess when was the last time Mark used this word truly at the front of a sentence in his gospel? It was when Peter said, truly, I don't know this man. Notice that Peter also said this man. It's a phrase that almost never happens in reference to Jesus. But here, Peter says it and with emphasis, truly. And he says it to deny Jesus when he's out by that charcoal fire in the courtyard of the high priest the night before. And now at Jesus' death, you have a pagan Gentile using the same words to proclaim Jesus, not deny him. Truly, this man was God's son. But of course, there are other uses of the phrase truly such Again, is when the disciples proclaimed Jesus as God's son when they saw him walking on the water. But here's the point Matthew and Mark are making about the centurion, that if we had nothing else, we could say this, to quote from one scriptural exegete, C.U. Manus, who says this, Mark makes the Roman centurion a faithful representative of Gentile Christianity. Which saw the significance of Jesus as the Son of God revealed par excellence in the drama of the cross. And a quote again from Father Brown He is the first of that believing community, which in the language of verse 58 constitutes another sanctuary not made by hand, replacing the Jerusalem sanctuary made by hand, the veil of which has been rent into two from top. bottom. And then there's that little bit more from Luke that the centurion was, quote, glorifying God for all he had seen. Remember that? Well, it's the same word Luke uses to describe the shepherds at the beginning of his gospel when he recounts how they had returned to their fields, quote, glorifying God for all they had seen. Get that? Glorifying God for all they had seen. There's something in the notion there that after you have seen God work, then you can't help but glorify him. So how is it plausible that a Roman centurion who is there for just another day on the job, for another execution of some enemy of the state, would see all these, quote, happenings and then become a believer on the spot? Sure seems far-fetched, doesn't it? That's what your garden-variety university professor would say. Actually, no, it's not far-fetched. In fact, it's entirely consistent with all of the other conversions that happened on the spot in the Gospels, too. All throughout the scriptures, we find people who encounter Jesus once and become believers on the spot. From disciples, to tax collectors, to lepers, to prostitutes, what we see over and over and over is that people will encounter Jesus and change their lives forever. The Centurion's account is entirely consistent with that. Don't forget that the same thing happened to Simon Cyrene just a couple hours before, and all he did was help Jesus carry his cross. And can we possibly forget the so-called good robber from our last series? He didn't need any catechism class to convert on the spot. So, yes, this is pretty cool. In the crucifixion account alone, you have a guy coming in from the fields who's forced to carry Jesus' cross. You have a convicted criminal who's suffering capital punishment. And you have a soldier ordered to carry out that punishment. A soldier who may, in fact, have started off mocking Jesus and whipping him and gambling for his sandals and clothing. All of them. But all of them end up, through the miraculous grace of God, converting on the spot. Just pause on that thought for a moment. Before, during, and after the crucifixion, before, during, and after, we see an outpouring of grace that allows individuals at all three stages to have spontaneous conversions through no particular effort of their own. The saving power of the cross is universal in time and scope, and of course it's a paradox. As Blessed Fulton Sheen observes from this event, he says this, the strange combination, which was everywhere in the public life of our Lord, is now manifested on the cross. Humiliation and power. Now lastly, what do we make then of Luke's particular reference to Jesus as this just man instead of God's son? Doesn't sound like he's making any great profession of faith. Well, it is, for some surprising reasons. First, we should observe, as others have, that even these words are not the expected words of some tough, battle-hardened soldier. The words you might expect a soldier to say, using, say, modern parlance, would be something like, wow, that was one tough dude. And maybe, in fact, he did say those words, and they just never got recorded. Let's not forget that centurions, as we've seen, are manly men, and they would be attracted to the grit and strength of other manly men. And Jesus who even at times may have appeared as gentle as a little lamb being led to the slaughter, was, in any case, and most especially, before, during, and now at the end of his crucifixion, a most manly man. That alone could have impressed the hell out of a centurion and the other soldiers. But that's not what seems to have also impressed them. A centurion doesn't praise Jesus for his bravery, his heroism, his restraint. He doesn't say he was a good man. He doesn't say he was a great prophet or teacher after all. He says he was a just man. Why? The Greek word is dikaios, which can be translated as just or innocent, which is why you see that word used in some translations of this passage. And Matthew uses the same Greek word to describe St. Joseph. Pilate's wife uses that term when she sends a message to Pilate to tell him to have nothing to do with Jesus. And Luke himself uses that term to describe Simeon in the temple at Jesus' presentation, Joseph of Arimathea shortly after his description of the centurion, and even to Cornelius the centurion in the Acts of the Apostles that we we talked about earlier. If Jesus was simply a just man, like all these others were, then, well, that's not saying anything particularly significant. And for that reason, scholars have debated this passage in Luke extensively. Probably the best explanation, I think, anyhow, is understanding the context in which Luke was writing this. We identify Luke's gospel as one of four gospels, but Luke wasn't thinking that. He wasn't thinking that his gospel is merely part one of his story and part two would continue in the Acts of the Apostles. In the Acts, he makes crystal clear that Jesus is the divine son of God, and he unfolds that story through the revelatory events to the disciples in it. So to call out Jesus right here at the crucifixion, the divine son of God, kind of jumps the gun and robs him of the unfolding story he wants to tell. Sure, he probably knew that Matthew and Mark and other eyewitnesses, including Jesus' mother Mary, who stood at the foot of the cross as an eyewitness and with whom he spent considerable personal time, confirmed the centurion's confession of Jesus as God's son. But Luke, shall we say, used the centurion's other words to focus on Jesus' innocence. So, he could let Peter and Paul tell the story of Jesus' divinity later. Now, also, using that word, let lets Luke give some terrific allusions to other scriptural passages, like Psalm 19. This was the psalm Jesus echoed when he said, Father, into your hands I place my spirit. Well, Guess how Psalm 19 continues? It says this, quote, Let the lying lips be struck dumb, which speak instantly against the just one, the dikaios, in pride and contempt. There's that wonderful passage in Wisdom, chapter 3, verse 1, that we often hear at funerals. The souls of the just are in the hand of God. That's the soul of the dikaios, by the way. And where we read in that passage even more, that the wicked adversaries are plotting to destroy the just one, again, the Dechaos, who professes himself to have knowledge of God and to being a child of God, and for saying God is his father. So the centurion's word, a coincidence? Yeah, right. And the parallel to the Book of Wisdom gets even better. There, the adversaries of the just one say, quote, if the just one, the dikaios, is the son of God, same words, by the way, Matthew and Mark are using, then he, that is God, will help him. Hmm. Wonder who just got done using those same words about Jesus at the crucifixion and in the likely presence and hearing of the centurion. I wonder if the chief priest had got up that morning with a little reading from the Book of Wisdom. Actually, no, they wouldn't have. They had pulled an all-nighter. But they surely had read that passage at some time or another and, I'm sure, lectured about it. Imagine that. Also, calling someone a just one was a direct reference to the qualification of the Davidic king that was expected to rule over Israel. It pops up in Jeremiah, Zechariah, and even in the Song of Solomon. But it's especially referred to in the book of Isaiah, and Isaiah's account of the suffering servant. Guess who the suffering servant is? The just one, the Dekeos. Can the allusion be any clearer? This is why Father Brown concludes this. By using just of Jesus, the centurion was preparing Luke's readers for the references to Jesus as the just one in Acts chapter 3 and 7 a title given him in relation to his having been put to death. So if we see that Mark seems to like having bookends in his gospel account, where he has God at the front end declaring Jesus his beloved son, and then he has a pagan Gentile centurion at the back end confirming it, Luke seems to like bookends too. At the front of his gospel, he gives us Simeon, Who's the first one to see Jesus in Jerusalem at the temple. And he says this, quote, My eyes have seen the salvation that you have made ready in the sight of all the peoples, a light to be a revelation to the Gentiles. Yes, to the Gentiles. Yeah, think about it. The very first time Jesus is brought into the presence of the temple, the principal locus of faith for all of God's chosen people, the first time a prophecy is made that Jesus will now be the light given to be a revelation to the Gentiles. And then here at the end of Luke's gospel, he gives us this, and I'm going to let Father Brown say it again. The first one to see Jesus in Jerusalem after his death is this centurion who glorifies God and by confessing Jesus, becomes an example of the salvation brought to the Gentiles. As I like to say, you can't make this stuff up. Now, there's a small postscript to the centurion at the cross. Mark tells us that as evening was approaching, Joseph of Arimathea, a prominent member of the council, had gathered up courage and went to Pilate to ask for Jesus' body. Pilate, Mark says at chapter 15, verse 44, wondered if he was dead by this time and summoning the centurion, he questioned him as to whether he was already dead. And after learning this from the centurion, he granted the body to Joseph. Now, once again, we have an interesting story of action and inaction. Arimathea is afraid of Pilate, but he gets his courage together and he uses his stature as a respected member of the Sanhedrin to seek an audience with Pilate. He says, I'd like to have Jesus' body. Pilate says, what? Is he dead yet? Arimathea says, yes. Pilate doesn't trust him, so he sends an aide to Calvary to summon the centurion to him. you got to wonder, what did uh, Pilate and Arimathea do in the meantime? Hey, can I offer you a drink? We just got in a fine barrel of beer from Egypt. How are the wife and kids? Oh, I remember. You're celebrating your feast tonight. Would you rather take a seat in the portico? I'm sure it was awkward, especially since Pilate didn't trust Arimathea's report. The centurion then returns. How did he present himself? Blood spattered? Dusty? Bad wine on his breath? Wide-eyed and stunned? He's probably standing next to the agent who summoned him and who was probably irritated that Pilate didn't take his word that Jesus was dead and made him run all the way to Calvary and back so the centurion could stand there and report the same doggone thing. Pilate asks, so is he dead? Centurion says, he's dead. By the way, fun Latin fact for you. You know, the Romans didn't have a word for yes, so they often repeated the question asked of them. Now, of course, we're assuming... Pilate and the Centurion are speaking Latin, which may be a stretch for reasons we outlined in the other podcast. Anyhow, Pilate turns to Arimathea, or what? Does he summon him from the portico? And he basically says, yeah, you can have the body. And Arimathea says, what? Thank you? Nothing? Something else? I don't know. He leaves. What does the Centurion do? Does he say, Commander, you will never guess what I saw today? Maybe he does. And maybe Pilate says, you'll never guess what I saw today, too. Does the centurion tell him what he saw and believed that this crucified convict was God's son? Maybe yes, maybe no. There are others under Pilate's command who likely told him that before. The centurion who told Jesus to just give an order so his servant could be healed. How about Zacchaeus, one of his chief tax collectors, who told him about how he climbed a tree to see Jesus, only to have Jesus come and invite himself over to dinner. Who knows? Pilate had softened up a bit by the end of that day, after what he had seen too. And he might have been just a wee bit tolerant with a trustworthy centurion, with whom he had likely traded plenty of other tales in the barracks, of the strange and bizarre in this bizarre foreign land. You don't think Pilate also saw the sun darken that day, or feel the earthquake, or heard the high priest screaming about their holy curtain being torn in two? Whatever happened, the centurion walks away, an incipient believer. And how about Pilate? Stands there, staring into his evening cocktail, a confused skeptic. And how about Pilate's wife, Claudia Procula, standing around the corner, glaring at him, This is all stage exit right for our centurion on this divinely scripted play of life. We don't hear about him again. And alas, we just don't know if he's one of the other five centurions Luke will tell us about in the coming years that we talked about earlier. He becomes lost in history and recreated in legend. We need to take a final look at John's account of the crucifixion scene. He doesn't mention any centurion as such. After Jesus had died, he just mentions in chapter 19 that the soldiers came by and broke the legs of the two robbers and declined to break Jesus' legs, seeing he was already dead. And then it says, one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear and blood and water came out. Was this our centurion we've been talking about? We have no idea. We do know, however, that this passage has given to some of the most extensive and rich theological commentary on the significance of both blood and water coming out of the size of Jesus, how it serves as a deep, symbolic source of salvation, divine love, and the sacraments. But I'm going to let you ponder that separately. One little item you might be interested to know, since we've been talking about how centurions are supposed to be experts with spears and javelins, called by the Latin pilum we've talked about. Did the soldier pierce Jesus with a pilum? No. It was a lance, which is different than a pilum. Pilum is a heavy spear. A lance is a lightweight spear, and military historians can talk to you all today about different kinds of weapons. I'm not going to, I'm just going to satisfy your query, as was mine, whether this was a pilum or not. It was not. But here's what's fun out of this, kind of. The Greek word for lance is longe, And it's from that word that tradition has given us a name to the soldier who used it. Longinus. Yes, Longinus. Pretty much everyone has heard of Longinus, haven't you? Was Longinus the centurion or was he someone else? All right, let me stop here, please. And will you allow me a bit of an editorial? I can't say I want to do this, but I feel like I have to here, especially since I said this guy's name. When we're in the realm of history, we're in a realm confined by known facts. We know some facts, we don't know some facts, and we try to find out facts we don't know. And we draw conclusions about what we know or don't know from those facts. And then we argue about those conclusions based on the facts we know or don't know. That's what historians do, and will always do. Who shot John F. Kennedy? Well, we know some facts. We don't know other facts. We form conclusions, and then we argue about those conclusions, and then we make movies about those conclusions, and maybe someday we'll find out more facts that alter those conclusions, and then make more movies. But we're in the realm of scriptural interpretation. We're in a realm that takes into account history, which is to say we're in a realm that takes into account facts that we know and facts that we don't know. The believer, of course, comes at scripture believing it to be the revealed word of God. The non-believer comes to scripture differently, I get that. I don't want to go on those differences, except to point out that whatever conclusions a believer or a non-believer draws from the text of scripture are drawn from facts that we know, or that we don't know, or that we think we know. Look, if that sounds like a truism, it is. Conclusions about the text of scripture are drawn from the text of scripture and from facts we know, or think we know, or what we don't know. So why is this important? because legends are different. Legends are unconfirmed facts. They may have a basis in fact, or they may be entirely made up. We don't have enough facts to know if the legends are true. Strong local traditions might help. They're not worth nothing, and they might even amount to evidence. That's why so many places are reputed to be holy sites, whether it's the cave at Bethlehem or even the location of Calvary. Those make compelling claims to be actual historical sites. We have a chain of custody that can be proven through accepted word of mouth. it also helps when you have Romans who try to desecrate those spots by building pagan temples over them. Thank you very much for letting us know where our cherished event happened. Now get out of the way. And when you have miracles associated with local claims, like St. Helen did with the nails and the wood of the cross, okay, I'm listening. But apart from those things, when you're left only with stories and nothing really else, You're at the level of pure legend, and then all you have is a story that sounds interesting. But so is fiction. And fiction, by definition, is not true. So far in this lecture, I've tried to stick to facts we know in discussing history and scripture, and to avoid straying too far from drawing conclusions based on facts we know and facts we don't know. And thankfully, as I hope you've seen, there's a lot we can know. And there's a lot, I think, that's inspiring too, especially for those of us who are believers and believe that the gospel accounts are not only true and historical, but, well, cool. I don't feel the same, though, from here on out, where we leave behind historical facts, many of which we can know, and scripture, which we believe to be true, and move on to the legends of our centurion and Longinus, as we'll call them now. We don't know if they are one and the same person. They might be separate people, the Orthodox think so, and I think so too. And someone else who thinks so, who continues to surprise me, by the way, is Anne Catherine Emmerich. I talked about her at the outset of the series and explained how she had this high-definition movie-like vision of our Lord's Passion, and there's much to commend uh, to it for meditation. Although we need to be clear that it's not canonical, and there are a host of issues that exist regarding it that you know keep us, or the Church, from ever affirming any of the details in it. But she sees the centurion and this lance thruster soldier as two different people. The former, she says, is named Abenadar. while the second one she sees as Longinus. And that's why, by the way, if you saw Mel Gibson's movie, The Passion of the Christ, he features two different soldiers by these two very different names. So in fact, while you know, these details may be fine for her and for good theater, at the level of scripture... I see good reasons why they should have no names at all. Remember, these soldiers are the symbolic representatives of a class of people, and the notion of their representation is better made when they don't have names than when they do. Remember, don't forget, it's Jesus who's the center of this crucifixion account. We don't know what happened to either of these two fellows, whether there was one or two of them after the crucifixion, and we don't know what happened to the lance or the tip of the lance that pierced Jesus' side, there are lots and lots and lots of stories about the centurion or Longinus or whoever those one or two people were, and of the lance used to open Christ's side, and even the tip of the lance, and there are books written about these legends, almost as prolific about those as the Holy Grail. And guess what? I commend none of them to you, because none of them are true, or shall we say, known to be true, no matter what some idiot says on the History Channel. There are all kinds of details that got added into this fictional book, The Acts of Pilate, that popped up in the middle of the 4th century, and how Longinus had been a blind old soldier who was given his sight back when some blood from Jesus' side dropped on his eyes. Okay, cute, but stop making stuff up. You know, you, you heard I was a scoutmaster, and I feel like I can tell pretty good stories around a campfire. But that doesn't mean they're true, and I feel like I can make up a whole bunch of stories about our centurion and or Longinus that are a whole lot better than the many legends surrounding them or him, or whoever. But that doesn't mean they're true. Maybe we'll get some facts someday that'll lend truth to one or more of the legends. I'm not holding my breath. And I can make up some great stories about the Holy Grail too, if you're interested. Others certainly have. So tell you what, here's my point. I'm not going to go any farther than the church has regarding our centurion, or Longinus, or the Holy Lance, as it's called. From the earliest of times, Christians revered the centurion They assumed he was the one with the lance, and they gave him the name Longinus because of it, and they assumed he was counted among the saints in heaven. Period. And no doubt from the facts we've seen, they had good cause to do so. Just as much for Simon of Cyrene, who merely carried Jesus' cross, and St. Dismas, as he's called in some traditions, the robber who asked Jesus if he would remember him when he went into paradise, We have excellent grounds for believing they are saints in heaven because the early Christians thought so and because they had good grounds to think so. So we shouldn't be surprised, therefore, that the Eastern and Western churches and Orthodox churches recognize a feast day for our centurion here. His feast day used to be March 15th on the old calendar, but it got moved to October 16th and added to the Roman martyrology, even though I have to say there's really no evidence he was a martyr. Some traditions, as I mentioned, said that Longinus was the centurion. The Orthodox tradition says he was not, whereas I should clarify that the centurion was not the one who pierced Jesus' side. That's because, they say, very credibly, it's too hard to imagine that the one who had just said in reverence, truly this is the Son of God, could bring himself to pierce that same body so violently. Hey, it wasn't me, they imagine the centurion saying, it was that other guy. Well, that fits my imagination too. On the other hand, the guy Bernini sculpted, whose image appears in St. Peter's Basilica, is that same guy. Again, who knows? A fragment of what is thought to be the Holy Lance is preserved also in St. Peter's Basilica, along with Bernini's statue. Maybe it's the real deal. Maybe it's not. You know, the church doesn't vouch for its authenticity, nor that Longinus was a centurion, or that the centurion was the guy with the lance. There's a church in Vienna that lays claim to having the lance, and one in Poland, and one in Georgia, Russian Georgia, that is. So who knows? Maybe one of them's right. Maybe they're all right. Maybe they're all wrong. I have to say, I don't care. I don't care only because I don't think God cares or he would have let us know. He wants us to cling to him, not to things. And so I want to get carried away with stories imagining about things or even people if we really don't even know anything else about them. But that's just me. If you want to yourself, That's fine. I'm not going to hold it against you. So now that I've rained on a lot of your parades, let me try to offer you what I think is the real value of our history here and of our scriptural exegesis. Look, the message of the gospel is the message of good news, that salvation is available to those who believe, that we do not need to face an eternal death and darkness, but we are called to eternal life and delight. And that calls open to anybody, at any time, irrespective of their background or their sin. So the story of the centurion is exactly this in miniature. We have someone who is about as far from the life of Jesus that one can be. A representative of a governing authority that was oppressing God's chosen people. Indeed, a ranking military official who is charged with enforcing that oppression. That someone has been trained in the art of war has excelled in that art, is respected by his peers for excelling in that art, has risen to a high rank in military service, and put in charge of supervising physical tortures and gruesome executions of individuals who may or may not have deserved those physical tortures and gruesome executions. He has no cause to be good in our sense of the term. He likely lives for pleasure and power and has probably had his fill of it in all the wrong ways, he does not deserve eternal life. He most certainly deserves eternal punishment. But in a flash of a moment, he's allowed to see around him and make a proclamation about Jesus that others were not able to make or refused to make. Other people saw Jesus condemned to death and heard his last words and were unmoved. Other soldiers saw Jesus suffer and die and it meant nothing to them. Remember, there's another robber who hung on the cross who cursed him. What allowed this centurion to profess that Jesus was God's son? What in his background prepared him for this? Anything on his own? Anything, shall we say, apart from a pure gift from God? No. God wants us to see that even the most dire of sinners the most hostile of enemies, the coldest of executioners, can still be saved. This is an extraordinary lesson. It's a lesson for you and for me. Because apart from God's grace, we too deserve eternal punishment. Oh, blessed centurion, we thank our Lord on high for the most exquisite grace he gave you. Pray for us so that being inspired by your example and assisted by your prayers, we may live a holy life, die a happy death, and reach eternal life to praise and thank God in heaven with you. Thank you very much for listening. If you like this, can you please do me a small favor? Go to Apple iTunes or whatever app you like and click on the stars there. The reason is it activates those goofy algorithms and then recommends this podcast to others. And you never know who might be touched the same way the centurion was. Thank you.